Welcome to The Legal Tea, the podcast where we interview lawyers bring beyond corporate law. Each week you'll hear about their practice area, the work that they do, and the roads they've taken to get there. I'm your host, Max Herberg. How's everyone doing this week? You know, it's funny. These past few weeks, I've been catching up with fellow classmates and friends. And aside from the usual, what are you doing for the Christmas holidays? The second most famous conversation is, what's your investment portfolio look like? You see, most people I talk to have set up investments not only into stocks, which to me is already surpassing my level of investment intelligence, but cryptocurrencies. And if you're like me, not only kicking themselves for not buying a bunch of Bitcoin back in 2010, but also confused by the vast amount of blockchain and crypto lingo, DAOs, NFTs, stablecoins, you name it, you might be feeling a whole lot of FOMO. Which is why this week I've asked Nathan Vandy, head of legal at Wasio, to help us get on the train to blockchain. We'll be talking all things blockchain law and governance. Specifically, in the episode, we discuss what is blockchain, we explore the blockchain lingo, and we also go through the histories and criticisms behind blockchain, as well as the vast amount of legal work and issues surrounding the technology to this day. Outside blockchain, we discuss Nathan's own career journey, specifically creating your own career path, the importance of having a wide yet comprehensive understanding of legal areas, and also how to breathe through it and let it come to you when it comes to professional opportunities. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, brew yourself a cuppa, and enjoy the show. Good morning, Nathan. Welcome to the Legal Tea Podcast. How are you doing today? Doing fine, Davidozzi. <laughs> so Nathan, we've got a lot to talk about today and I have no doubt it's going to be an in-depth and amazing conversation. But before we dig in, why don't you take a little time to explain the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, of course. So I'm Nathan Vandy, as Max just introduced. I'm a UK lawyer, but I actually practice in the EU and I specialize in dealing with blockchain-based organizations, organizations that integrate blockchain into their business operations, and a new novel type of corporate entity called DAOs, Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. Uh, whilst practicing this area, I'm also doing a PhD in law and governance, and that's about my life right now. <laughs> That, that that's it. Not, nothing, nothing else. Because it already sounds like you got a lot on your plate. <laughs> um, yeah, I won't go into the other things, but yeah, let's just say head of legal work with say where I deal with blockchain organizations and DAOs, and then we'll get to the rest later. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So first off, kind of you know, elephant in the room. What is blockchain? Yeah, really, really good question. So blockchain on a high level, I call it a, a source of truth. Typically, when humans wanted to have something which they all agreed on, they would have a ledger where they would say, okay, I owe Jimmy two cows and Jimmy owes me one hour of labor on my farm. And they would put this on a sheet of paper. Usually someone would be in control to make sure that the ledger was updated. And at the beginning, they kept this on stone walls. 
eventually with the print and press, they started being able to put this on paper and had books like accounting books, for example. But with the advent of more digital technology, we started using Excel spreadsheets and now even Google Sheets as well to have sources of truth, which we all saw who owed what. And now with blockchain technology, we can do this in a way where instead of these Excel spreadsheets being kept by intermediaries such as banks, who would keep how much someone owed another person, we're able to do this with blockchain technology, where instead of one person owning the spreadsheet, everyone owns this spreadsheet. And this is done using P2P technology, peer-to-peer technology. And uh, it means that everyone owns it and no one owns it. And uh, they do this through a consensus algorithm called proof of work, where people use their computer processing powers to be able to solve really difficult puzzles whenever someone makes a transaction. And if the transaction is verified by one person and they broadcast this to the network and everyone agrees, then it's added to this ledger. If people don't agree, then it's not added to the ledger. So you are incentivized to act in a good way because if you act in a bad way, you're wasting your computer processing power. Um, And this is how they maintain this source of truth and they get rewarded with Bitcoins to do so. And that's the currency that powers this trust network. Let's go into why the move has been towards this kind of community acting as a source of truth. What's the what's the problem or what was the problem with having one person acting as that source of truth or as an intermediary? Yeah, well, as I said, for the very first application of blockchain, um, it came from the financial crisis actually it emerged in 2008 when uh, there was a massive failure in our financial institutions in their ability to manage and keep our trust in relation to the financial transactions they were making. This is the mortgage-backed security crisis that happened, started from America. And people were not able to visibly see the type of securities that were backed. Um, There were different rated securities, like BBB securities, AAA securities, and they bundled a lot of the worst type of securities with the good ones. And people couldn't distinguish, and therefore that lack of transparency created crisis that spread all over the whole world. Uh, That caused a lot of people to lose their jobs. Families got affected a lot. Some mortgages, right? These, These are people's homes that were affected. And therefore, by having a technology where this ledger that updates all of these assets and transactions is visible by all of the people um, involved in the network, it adds another layer of auditability and transparency where it's not just those individuals and maybe some auditors maintaining it, but everyone who's involved. And this is the main, I'd say, focus of why blockchain technology became such a strong narrative because it allows us to take back control of our financial sovereignty. And talking about sovereignty, so with the blockchain, my understanding is everything is kind of open. People can see kind of all the transactions that happen in the ledger. And so therefore, you know, it's maintained by this peer-to-peer network, which ensures that it's immutable. You can't really change it or kind of forge it, uh, or it would be very difficult to do so. Um, But at the same time, 
you have a more of an anonymity aspect to it. So it doesn't say Nathan and Max made a transaction of 500 pounds to do this interview. <laughs> Just for the record, that didn't happen. But anyways, it says party A and party B made a transaction or kind of encryption key, 15 characters, encryption key, 15 characters made a transaction. So how does blockchain achieve this right balance between, you know, a lot of transparency, but also anonymity? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. And the way they do that is quite clever. It's done using a technology concept called public-private key encryption. And to think about it really simply, public-private key encryption is public keys are your username and private keys are your password. And each of the computers, each of the, the wallets that are connected in this peer-to-peer network have this public and private key. They have this username and they have this password. And everyone can see the public key. However, this public key is pseudonymous. So when you are looking at the interactions that are happening in the network, all you see is the pseudonymous 25 alphanumeric key. So it's 0x1 two, nine, three, eight, 25 hours <laughs> <laughs> that no one probably remembers. You have to write it down and you have a connected uh, private key. So you can send cryptocurrencies, whether you're using the first blockchain application of Bitcoin to send one Bitcoin to, to my part from my public key to yours. But to be able to sign and uh, verify these transactions, you need to use the private key to do so. And this allows us to keep our pseudonymity so you don't actually see the person's name. You only see this this key and give uh, control over that individual wallet with the private key for security. So you've got privacy at the front, security at the back. How has blockchain then kind of evolved to the stage where it is today? Because about a decade ago, you know, blockchain and, and crypto was was famous for facilitating kind of illegal activity uh, like money laundering and, and other drug selling and human trafficking, um, such as the kind of the Silk Road website. Nowadays, you have governments and institutional infrastructure projects being developed on it. So what's changed? You know, what's given it this kind of legitimacy? Yeah, it's... It's definitely the narrative more or less has stayed the same from the blockchain community in a sense that they've seen this as a secure, trusted ledger that people can facilitate transactions. It's just that the amount of use cases that have come from it have, have grown. So I said initially, it was mainly used to create um, a peer-to-peer payment network where people can send transactions anywhere in the world, where previously this could take days and weeks to send it into some countries. I've got some uh, personal experience with sending money back home to family (laughs) in Sierra with this. Um, And then this very fast and efficient settlement was used in, in other areas as well. So for example, First and foremost, they created what's called the Ethereum network, where it created smart contract functionality where you can incorporate business logic into this blockchain network as well through if this, then that statements. 
And this allowed people to create a whole new plethora of business opportunities on top in different areas from supply chain to car hailing services as well. And what's come to be known as like DeFi as well, where you can create really exotic, novel economic assets or financial assets and other um, just tokens in general that have rights attached to them. And this is what's really, really interesting because you can create these attached rights to these tokens and give them a meaning that everyone else agrees to them. So you can create communities based on these tokens that have these programmed rights. And that's when the business started to get into it. And then the government saw, okay, they're onto something here. Like if we can create new operations and organizations with faster settlement, um, we can customize the rights of these assets. Uh, what else can we do? So you have governments having CBDCs, for example, uh, where they are creating um, currencies with certain permissions for the users. You're also having governments starting to implement it in voting as well, where they're using blockchain to do fast, secure voting between their participants. And we're going to hopefully see it in other areas as well, with um, especially once this new organization called DAOs that have come from blockchain start to get more legitimacy as well. Some areas in government could also become DAOs too. So over time, as the, the utility of blockchain has grown and the proof that it couldn't be a secure way of creating trust between communities and people have been confirmed. Bitcoin's been live for 13 years and it's still going, right? And I still kick myself every day that I didn't buy it back when it was uh, worth nothing. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of us do have this, this feeling as well. But at the end of the day, we're still at the beginning right? This is going to be the future of how we, we interact with each other. So like the fact that we're talking about it now, uh, where this is going to be used in hundreds of years in the future is super, super exciting. I just find it amazing how, you know, even as you were saying, it, it sounds a lot like, you know, even though now, you know, governments and institutions are, are starting to pay attention to it and there's being a lot of money put into it. It seems like we're only at the tip of the iceberg as to its functionality and uh, just what it can do and all the areas in, in, in daily life and business in society that it can play a role into. Now, let's talk about DAOs. What is a DAO? <laughs> it's a really, really good question, actually. Uh, DAO is, <laughs> I really like this spiffy statement. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a forum with a joint bank account. <laughs> a forum with a joint bank account. What do I mean by that? So let's start with the acronym of DAO. A DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization. So decentralized in that anyone can join it. It's very fluid in its membership, um, autonomous in that it uses smart contracts and other autonomous technologies such as blockchain to be able to do so. And it is an organization. So it's a group of people coming together for a shared purpose. And uh, that purpose can evolve over time. But that's what it is. That's a doubt. So how does this work practically? Well, Typically, when you want to join an organization, 
Um, you might go to LinkedIn Jobs. <laughs> um, you'd find a job application and then uh, you'd apply for the position, go through the interview stage. But to get into a DAO, you typically start with their forum or their Discord. Like it, at the end of the day, uh, on their forum or their Discord, they'll have a group of people saying, okay, we want to achieve this goal where whether it's we want to start pooling our money together to, to buy NFTs. So in this forum, in this Discord, you would understand how you can get involved, whether you they have a weekly meeting, for example, with all of the team together, like a stand-up at a company, right? Um, and then uh, they would say, okay, we're working on this, that, and the other. And then after a while of you go into these meetings, you understand how you can input your skills, whether you have marketing skills, business development skills, sailing skills, legal skills, tech skills, right? You could say to this DAO, look, I would like to contribute um, my time and effort to this initiative that we're doing. And this happens all on online platforms because as long as you have an internet, right, you can just join, join this organization. The really interesting thing is the legal classification of this though. Because if anyone can just go on a website and join a, a DAO and it doesn't have a typical entity type that it, it fits to because it's just decentralized, anyone in the world can join. In most jurisdictions, this is known as an unincorporated partnership because it's a partnership between loads of people, but they don't have a legal entity, which actually they can use to facilitate their um, business objectives. And this is a big risk that all DAOs face basically because if one person gets into legal issues the other people in this group especially the public facing poor members could be seen as legally responsible and the community in general is joint and severably liable for um, any issues that the DAO faces. So essentially I mean it, it sounds like it's a it's it's a company, but without the formalities. And legally speaking, because it's about as easy as joining a, a Facebook group, um, in, in some senses, it's treated as a un, an incorporated partnership, which leads to unlimited liability. And so, therefore, you know, it's if if one person goes down, everybody goes down along with them. Yeah, definitely, definitely. There's a lot of lawyers and and academics that are looking to see how this organizational type differs from unincorporated partnerships to be able to give people limited liability when they're working with DAOs. Um, but this is in the making. Uh, it's quite a new uh, concept. I would say newer than NFTs and countries have just started regulating how NFTs work, right? So it's going to be a while before uh, jurisdictions catch up. Obviously, you've got some such as Wyoming and Vermont who are ahead of the curve. But even these two entity types that they've created, DAO LLC and a blockchain-based LLC, they have their limitations for certain types of DAOs. So it's going to be a while until a DAO becomes the new way that we work, even though we're moving in that remote <laughs> decentralized way where you work with people that you've never met before, right? <laughs> Let's go through, you know, a utopian kind of an ideal situation. So let's say we've got, uh, you and me, we've got a DAO on, on kind of a blockchain network. We, we've pulled our money together 
And, um, you know, we do a business selling, I don't know, computers. So what is a smart contract and, and how does that play in our way of doing business as a DAO? Yeah. So smart contracts are if this, then that statements, basically, which means that they get triggered automatically. If something happens, then this happens. And obviously for something to happen, there needs to be an input into the program because it's all autonomous, right? <laughs> it's all on the blockchain. Everyone can see the, the, the rules on it. And this works very, very good for financial transactions, right? So for example, if there's a situation where I send you, send to a smart contract um, one Bitcoin, the smart contract might say, if Nathan or my public key sends one Bitcoin to this smart contract, then store this and give him a reward of 0.1 Bitcoins every one month. And that just happens automatically. So um, that's smart contracts. How it would work inside a DAO? Well, it, it really depends. For your example, it's quite interesting because it's an analog business. <laughs> <laughs> too, old, too old school, too old school for the blockchain world. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, quite, it's quite interesting. But with DAOs, you can have, um, you can have physical services as well, right? But it would be a little bit more difficult in the sense that, for example, of course, we can have on the blockchain how many computers have been produced and we can connect that to our manufacturing suppliers, right? And then we can have all the different parts of the computer connected to the different uh, supply chains and like so we can see where it is from start to end we can have that level of traceability we could also have our corporate bank account on the blockchain as well so you can see where the money that we've pulled together goes to the different supply chains as well and this can be done in a, a smart contracted way too where when a one supplier confirms that they've actually made the piece then it goes straight from our public key address straight to, to theirs. There's lots of ways to design blockchain-based organizations around operations, um, whether it's uh, analog or digital. I mean, the, the imagination or your creativity is really the limit, to be honest. And so there's this thing that, that I read up on that's called the DAO incident. Sounds, sounds very scary, but it was about kind of a couple years ago. And it's something about kind of, you know, this society that created a DAO and either a hacker kind of, you know, stealing $600 million worth of uh, crypto, or then there's a, this debate whether it was kind of how the DAO was programmed, that it worked in a certain way that wasn't intended. So what happened with that and, and how does that incorporate into the challenges faced by DAO, not necessarily on a regulatory level, but also with, you know, how we're learning about how they work? Yeah, this was a really, really shocking incident, actually. It was one of the first really big DAOs to, to come to fruition, made by some of the core Ethereum members. As I said, Ethereum was the first um, really big blockchain to incorporate smart contracts and business logic. 
And the business logic that they incorporated into their blockchain is the ability to pull assets together and invest them into business initiatives. So just like a venture capital firm, but on the blockchain, everything's transparent, everyone can see, right? They had this whole governance structure where they would be able to review different blockchain projects and then the DAO would agree, okay, we're giving them this amount of money. And then I believe that they would set up these orphan DAOs from this main DAO that would have the money so that they could use the money over time to start to grow their business. And I believe that a hacker was able to create an orphan DAO and be able to just siphon the money from the main one without having to go through the whole governance process. And this meant that he was able to steal a lot of money. And um, this is something that's quite difficult about DAOs because it's governed on such a, a wide um, decentralized level. You need certain governance rules to be able to make changes because if anyone can make a change at any time, then it's not decentralized. So this process sometimes takes days and weeks to be able to make a change on a smart contract level, which means if a hacker finds an issue with the a smart contract or the code, they can really exploit it over a longer period of time because there's typically not what they call these emergency controls where they can shut it down. So this hacker made off with, as you said, millions from the DAO and there was an existential crisis in the blockchain world, especially with Ethereum. How do we deal with this? Is it really a hack or was he actually just following the code as it was meant to be? This is the theory or the concept called code is law. So everything that the code permits is what should be allowed to happen. Like it's our fault if we allow it to happen. Um, we need to be better and code for all eventualities, which has its limitations, right? Humans, even when we're creating law itself, often <laughs> create holes and errors which can create loopholes, right? It's a concept that really doesn't take into the consideration that humans are flawed at our base level. So if humans are flawed, then sometimes the code is going to be flawed. However, that's a philosophical debate in the blockchain world. <laughs> a very, very jurisprudential kind of question. And, and I'm guessing kind of, you know, that's, that, that's why they need you, Nathan, you know, to, to come in as the minute man to basically institute some law and governance to prevent, you know, hackers from committing daylight robbery or, you know, as some blockchain philosophers might say, ingeniously, you know, work the code to its intended purpose. But why don't you tell us a little bit more about, you know, the work that you do at Wetseo uh, and how you help kind of blockchains and, and, and DAOs institute kind of proper governance to ensure and kind of mitigate against the risk of these things happening? Yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot of risks. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of risks. And um, I suppose it's just like working in any other organization, really, because depending on the organization that I'm working for, I'm typically acting as a legal governance or legal counsel where I would do a, an analysis of all of the legal issues that the DAO would have to, or the blockchain-based organization would have to deal with. So that comes from a level of commercial agreements, how the corporate setup is, is made between the, the DAO members, 
fundraising. So whether that's through token issuance or through what's called SAFT agreements, simple agreements for future tokens, um, whether that's on the employee side, so how to employ people, tax as well is a really big one, IP. Basically, as a legal counsel of these organizations, you have to have a very wide understanding not too shallow. It needs to be thick enough to actually understand all those issues. But typically what happens is that you work with lawyers that are specialized in, for example, tax, because that's not my speciality. Uh, you'd focus with jurisdictional domain lawyers that are connected to the DAO in a certain area to be able to resolve issues that the, the DAO may face. And, you know, what's that like? Because it's actually, as, as we were talking, you know, about a couple of minutes back, not a lot of kind of jurisdictions have officially recognized DAO or have set out a list of rules specifically applied to DAO. So I can imagine that, you know, you, even when you're working with uh, specialist taxation lawyers and, and other types of lawyers, a lot of it is almost kind of, you know, you're, you're, you're predicting, you know, the risk to a certain level is uncertain. How do you how do you manage this uncertainty? Yeah, it's a lot of times you have to go to first principles. So understand why the law was created in the first place, who the, what the law is set up to do. And from there, you can see which is the most applicable law to the situation, because that's exactly what the regulators are doing as well. <laughs> They don't look at the, the form, so they don't look at the name. They look at the function. They look at how it works functionally. And that's what a lot of lawyers in this area have to do so that we can actually work side by side with the regulators to have this audited process of how we've thought through all of these issues and how we've taken the traditional legal framework and innovative structures as well to be able to um, deal with these problems that we have. And with the borderless nature of DAOs, how does that work with the jurisdictions and the regulators that you're consulting with? You know, is there is 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 there at least a, a framework of which you can benefit from and which you know kind of okay, for this DAO, I need to work with jurisdiction in the US and in the UK and in Belgium, or is it, you know, anywhere that the DAO touches in the sense that a member is in this country, another member is in that country, you've got to do deal with those countries. Yeah. One of the really, really important things that we mentioned at the beginning is, is limited liability, right? So typically for DAOs, the main thing is actually having a corporate and tax structure which encapsulates this limited liability in whichever structure is necessary for the DAO. So you might have a company in one country and the DAO member is in another, but the DAO member works for that company to shield that member from its liability. Obviously, this has to be done in, in a way that actually makes sense because some jurisdictions have further jurisdictional reach than others. But it, it's once again, it's an audit, it's an analysis of the different jurisdictions that are available, the ones that make sense tax-efficient wise as well for the DAO. And then uh, it's structured in a way that works for the DAO's purpose as well. And so what's been your highlight moment on the job so far, kind of working with, with DAOs, consulting with other lawyers, seeing all the types of blockchains you can, you, you can witness in one lifetime and more? Yeah, it's, it's a very, very uh, exciting 
industry to be in. And one of the things that really excites me is the ability to work alongside such innovative and intelligent builders, whether they're developers, whether they are lawyers as well. Everyone has more or less the same ethos that they see that blockchain can be used to make the world a better place and to create more trust, create more transparency. And we're all just trying to create, <laughs> I really like this analogy. Um, in the blockchain industry, you are both learning to make the car, learning to make the roads, learning to make the seatbelts and the driving license <laughs> applications <laughs> all at the same time. Because um, it's just in, in process. And I, I said that to a friend and he said, no, we just learned what the combustion engine is. We haven't even got the car running yet. <laughs> um, and, um, I guess that's the, the most exciting part, really, of finding these, these solutions, whether it's technological solutions or legal solutions, and having uh, that being open source that everyone else can be able to use and share to build this industry up. That's amazing. I mean, especially kind of the the, the collaborative community and, and the industry-wide effort to reach a, a common objective. It sounds, you know, quite a contrast to the typical associations of a cutthroat corporate world that we see in the general legal industry, which leads me to my next question, naturally, is, you know, what got you into, in, into blockchain and specifically kind of blockchain law and governance? Because you know, when I was going to career fairs and law fairs, I never saw kind of blockchain law stand, you know, work for blockchains in law and governance. So would you mind telling us a little bit about your journey? Yeah, of course. When I finished my high school or sixth form, as they call it, I really wanted to study history because I just love learning about different cultures, different different countries and understanding where they came from so you can understand where they're going. Um, this is something that's really, really important to me. However, when I was going to university, my mum actually convinced me to take law um, because uh, I come from a West African background, which is very educationalist. And she basically said, look, I want you to do a degree where you're guaranteed a job after. So um, reluctantly, I did it. But I do thank her for pushing me in this direction because when you study law, you get to do history, study the history of laws as well. So I got to have my cake and ate it. And um, during law school, I really didn't find my my way because it was I was a bit delusioned with it, especially at the start. So when I came out of law school, I didn't have any training contract. And in fact, believe it or not, I actually got a Desmond Tutu for my degree which made it even more difficult for me to enter the industry in a traditional way. And I got that there were some extenuating circumstances that I won't go into, but I took responsibility for that. So I said, okay, I know I want to work as a lawyer, but I can't go through the traditional route. So what can I do? So the first thing that I did is I gave out my CV because I got a wealth of legal experience from different firms during my degree. And I gave it to uh, loads of high street firms in my area. It's about 20. And only one of them actually replied. <laughs> it's, all, it's only one you need. <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely, you only need one. 
And as soon as you get your foot in the door, it's your responsibility to, to work as hard as you can to get all the experience that you need. So you, you need, especially when you have a tutu, you need a very entrepreneurial mindset to be able to actually get the legal experience that you need to be able to work with other lawyers that go through the more traditional route. And the, it's a bit more of a catered route, right? But regardless, at this um, law firm, I was able to get some really good experience in criminal law. I was able to get some experience in international commercial law as well. So I started to understand the procedures and substance of law. And then I went to do a European law masters in Maastricht. And this was really, really exciting because this once again gave me uh, experience on a more international level and how law works rather than just on a national level. And during this, this is when my whole world opened up. <laughs> like my first game plan was to become a Brexit lawyer. But this was around 2017 when um, Bitcoin reached 20,000. It's dwarfed now. Um, so, but I was really excited. I was like, what is this new technology where I can send money from my phone to Max's phone without the need of a bank? Boom. That was <laughs> mind blowing. <laughs> <laughs> I pivoted from doing a master's thesis on the legal and economic impacts of Brexit. And it looks at the data protection implications of um, blockchain technology. And from there, I uh, started to give consultations on the data protection implications of implementing blockchain to different companies. And as I said, during this time, I was still working at different companies during the side whilst I was working. And eventually, I got accepted um, as a legal counsel role for blockchain identity company, where I was supporting them with contract drafting, I did a really exciting pilot project with Daimler, Mercedes as well, to implement um, blockchain. I got to work with uh, the UK government where they were implementing um, new solutions for digital identity too. And I got to work with my first DAO as well. So I, I finished my degree um, just before this, but uh, you can see that it was not linear at all. <laughs> For me to like get all of this legal experience, I just had to really hustle with purpose and intention. And um, eventually, if you really want it, it, it will definitely come to you. And in a few years' time, when I'm supporting companies, people won't ask, okay, well, did you get a 2-2? Did you get a 2-1? They'll look at the quality of the advice that you give, and that's all that matters. So... It was quite tough at the beginning because it's easy to have a defeatist mentality when you don't start on the same footing as other people. But yeah, I had friends that encouraged me, said, oh, I know partners at Magic Circles that got two twos, um, just keep on going. And yeah, eventually we found the area that actually suited me. And um, I'm really happy that I got here. That's amazing. And, and as you were saying there, because, you know, graduating kind of with, with a Desmond Tutu, I mean, for a lot of people can kind of be um, heartbreaking and, and soul crushing for me because of all the perceptions and everything you're taught throughout law school, where it's kind of, 
it's 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 a two one. You need two one. You need two one, and you kind of hit a wall. As you know, kind of, you know, uh, life doesn't always happen, uh, turn out the way we plan to it. But I mean, you kind of took that and said, okay, well, it's time for me to kind of find my path. And 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 you did kind of, as you were saying, you know, you're an intro- entrepreneur, you kind of, you, you went to your high street firms, applied to a bunch, you know, you applied to 20, but you got one. And in that one, you really made the most out of it. And from there, you did a master's, but you think you're going to be kind of a Brexit lawyer. And then life showed you, you know, blockchain is actually makes a lot more money and has a lot more future potential application. And you're like, okay, I'm going to go into that. And then from there, you, you know, you end up with a job in blockchain and you're helping, you know, you're not only helping uh, companies with this fundamental new technology, but you're helping with Daimler. And, you know, it's just, I don't know. I, I find that amazing where it's kind of, you know, you can start out in one position and think your life is going to work out in, as you were saying, in a linear way. And then it works out in a completely different one. And it's, I don't know, it, in one, in one way, it's, it's, it's very uncertain and, and it's scary, but in another way, like at least in your case, it sounds fascinating and exciting. No, you're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It's, definitely has this level of uncertainty to it and uh, to to that extent you have to make sure that you have a strong foundation around you so you have people that encourage you even when things are tough because you're not always going to have the best days during this but another thing that really 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 helped me is that um, I always made sure that the work that I was doing was something that even if it didn't work out, there was a baseline for me in the sense that when you're trying to find your way, you should always have like a goal of where you want to go. So aim for like the moon so that you fall on the clouds. So yeah, that always gave me a level of certainty where I said, look, um, like I was in Germany at the time. I was like, okay, if it doesn't work well um, and it doesn't work well with this job, then I'll just go back home and stay with my nan <laughs> <laughs> i mean hey like you said you know aim for the aim for the moon reach the clouds of the stars like uh, i totally respect that one thing i was actually quite interested in is you know how you went from kind of researching you know blockchain and the data protection applications for your thesis to actually landing a job because you know blockchain is very intimidating and also very complicated. I know this because I did a uh, a little kind of, I did these night courses in my last year trying to kind of learn about blockchain, but also the, the, the spot contract aspect of it. And I just completely like felt like I was learning a new language and it is very, intim- very intimidating. So I'd be interested in kind of in, in learning how you kind of, you know, took an, a subject which you were studying and then manage to kind of convert that into a career. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's what all lawyers do, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, We we understand things in such a way that we understand how a, a service or a product will interact, how it interacts with humans and how to create the rights and responsibilities in between that interaction. That's, that's all that, that law does the better that we understand the service the better that we understand the products the better that we're able to have clarification on the rights and responsibilities when individuals or entities or or machines are interacting with each other um one really amazing thing is that my dad was a programmer 
and he worked for, for the government on like some really cool projects. So I always had this in in my nature when it came to technology. I used to see my dad reading like C++ books, thick as Bibles. So I had this exposure to technology all the time. So that was always underneath and I had that attraction. Um, also, I set up my own company um, during my master's as well. And uh, when you're setting up your own company, especially with a legal background, you get into all of the areas of law yourself as you help and set everything up. So that gave me another foot in on top of the already consulting work that I'm doing. That's like what really pushed me into like the more legal counsel role because you had to do legal stuff in everything, right? And then on top of that, I was really supporting um, with just consultations on data protection. So doing GDPR work in, in regards to blockchain technology, policies, privacy policies, data protection agreements. Um, and I even, for example, did the third party transfer agreement with the UK government. So that experience compounded uh, after a while. And that's what enabled me to do work with other companies too as well, because yeah, I would, I would obviously work with other um, external lawyers a lot of the time, especially in Europe, because I don't speak fluent German. But um, yeah, it was, it's just the experience that compounded after after time of taking smaller works and then taking on more responsibility over time. Just out of curiosity, because you mentioned Germany a couple of times, is is that the kind of the country in Europe which you would say is is the one that's most advanced or there's the most action going on in the blockchain space? Or yes, I would say the in Germany the laws are the most advanced for sure. Um, they're the most mature in in many areas. There is obviously Estonia as well, which has very mature blockchain laws. But definitely Germany, when it comes to AML, when it comes to anti-money laundering, when it comes to the categorization of financial assets as securities or uh, utility tokens or payment tokens, they are really, really ahead of the curve when it comes to licensing for crypto services. They're definitely ahead of the curve for sure. You talk about, you know, having kind of already a programming background or, you know, a, a, a exposure to technology from, from a very young age due to kind of your father being a programmer, but also kind of yourself, you know, with law being a lawyer and also a lot of interest and experience in setting up your own businesses. So what's been your experience with almost mediating between these different worlds? You know, you've got the business world on the one hand. And you've got the legal world on the other hand, but also at the other end, you've got the, the technology and the people who kind of build these structures and program these structures. So how have you found that idea about dealing with these, all these different parties who speak almost their own different languages and kind of getting them to, to work together for, as you were saying, kind of a greater purpose, you know, get the combustion engine going. Yeah, I, I don't have the Rosetta Stone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> However, when you need to understand technology as a non-technologist, as a non-developer, it forces you to really understand it on a deep conceptual level where you can simplify it quite a bit and find high-level analogies. So, for example, 
One of the analogies that I had um, is that blockchain is like a Google Sheets where the access to it is public so everyone can see it. And uh, you can see all the changes that are made over time because everything is timestamped on the Google Sheets, right? <laughs> and having different types of analogies involved in your explanation of it helps everyone to speak more of a, a common language when you're when you're discussing it. And that's the main thing for me, just being able to really simplify the concept so that it can be explained to you. Anyone from different backgrounds, so for example, a forum and a bank account, a joint bank account, like these are small, biffy statements that anyone can, it can catch anyone's imagination. As you said, it's like a, it's like a Facebook group, right? The DAO's like a Facebook group. These types of things really create the connections that people need um, of things that they're already familiar with so that we can all um, work on the same baseline. And so talking about, you know, again, as a, as a community and, and, and as, as an industry kind of making this worldwide effort, and, and I love the car analogy because my next question is, is actually quite tied into it. What we all know about cars is that they're bad for the environment, at least in their current state. And sustainability has been a huge topic of interest recently um, with blockchain, you know, because for its high fame, it gets for security and immutability and transparency gets a lot of bad press for its energy consumption, particularly, as you were saying, with these consensus algorithms, which require a lot of computational power. Do you see this problem as the be-all, end-all of blockchain? Or do you see this as the same thing with the industrial revolution and the combustible engine of the car? We're seeing the 1.0, but the 2.0 and the 3.0 will eventually help address these sustainability issues. It's just a matter of life cycle. I mean, you kind of answered your own question. This is just the way that uh, technology and humans develop, right? We iterate with time. Uh, we went from horses to petrol-based cars to diesel-based cars, which are more efficient. And now we're going to be going towards electric cars. Because even though there are certain risks involved with electric cars, um, there's entrepreneurs willing to take those risks to be able to create a better world and they're rewarded for doing so. For example, with, in Bitcoin, it does use this proof of work consensus algorithm, but developers are already looking at different ways to create more green ways of having this consensus through things such as proof of stake, where instead of using your computer processing power, use your economic stake in the network. And if you verify a transaction, or you do it negatively in a way to change the ledger for your own selfish benefit, your economic stake in the network gets slashed. And therefore, everyone, once again, is economically incentivized to act in the right way, but it's done with a lot less of CPU computer processing power. And these new ways of having that same level of transparency, fast settlement, or disability that's found in proof of work consensuses will develop over time. And there's there's already a lot of blockchains that, which are doing this. There's ones like Algorand, for example, 
and Zilliqa, who have already implemented really green um, consensus algorithms. So we're getting the same benefit of blockchain with even more greener um, processing. And this will just continue over time. And a lot of the proof of works typically will fade out over time. I'm not sure if Bitcoin will, because it's such a staple but a lot of the newer ones, even Ethereum, they're going to move towards proof of stake as well. And eventually it will just lead to greener money. It's exciting. We just have to give it space to breathe, you know, like no one changes overnight. Humans don't change overnight. Point to me one and I will become their... Um... Their law <laughs> governance advisor. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think about all these all these blockchains because um, as you were saying you were just kind of you know listing all these different blockchains and, and I just couldn't imagine how how one could keep track of all of them do you think that over time you know we'll find say the google of of the blockchains and everyone will use that and no and so there'll be other ones but nobody really uses other you know um, search browsers and so google becomes the one that 99% of the world use or do you feel that it will always be in this constant competition of all these new blockchains kind of starting up and offering, well, we do it greener, well, we do it more securely, we offer uh, each individual benefit? Yes. I mean, for example, with uh, Google, we're already starting to see competitors in the blockchain space uh, with, with Graph. And no empire has as a like an infallibility like anyone can come and fall you know that's what's exciting about uh, innovation because you can always create new things that enable humans to see okay that's a better way of doing it <laughs> and then people will always follow the best ideas um, eventually and it's the same in blockchain there will be certain blockchains that people have very maximalist tendencies for so for example there's something called bitcoin maxis where they say everything is going to be built on bitcoin it's not the best smart contract for smart contract functionality but we'll integrate it and none of none of the others will exist um, but then you have people that are the same with ethereum saying oh ethereum's the best one uh, you only need Ethereum, but then Ethereum took a lot of time to get green where these other blockchains are a lot more greener. They have faster settlement times where Ethereum sometimes you have these high fees that people have to pay when they're doing settlement. So it's just going to grow organically in a really competitive way, but in a collaborative way. And that's the really exciting thing about blockchain that you can get better interoperability between the different ledgers. So you can have what's called cross-chain um, compatibility, where you have ledgers that speak to other blockchains, whether it's speaking to Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, Algorand, the permissionless nature of these technologies, where anyone can find the, the ledgers online, find the code, really enables more composable systems, which is really, really exciting. And now let's talk quickly about uh, NFTs. So NFTs, they've grown huge in the last kind of year and a half. And um, originally it was kind of, you know, the Beeple artists, very famous for selling his uh, his artwork. But now you have trading cards, you've got GIFs, you've got memes, you've got all sorts of things being sold as NFTs. Now, 
My question for you is, you know, what do you see the 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 value behind NFTs? What would be kind of your your ideal use for an NFT? And then obviously big question, do you own an NFT? <laughs> so NFTs are non-fungible tokens and they are simply tokens or a string at alpha and another alphanumeric string that represents rights and interest to uh, an asset. This asset can be intangible. So it can be like IP rights and uh, this asset can be tangible as well. Uh, so you can have it to uh, connected to a house, for example, an NFT can represent the rights and interest to a house. And the reason why it's so exciting is because this non-fungibility, this digital scarcity means that you can prove who actually has ownership of this because there's only one of this token that exists. And you can find out when it was minted, the rights and interest that it was minted with. And this follows whoever holds it in their in their public private key wallet, right? And that's really exciting because beforehand, if you wanted to change ownership of something, it would have to be done typically through a notary. And for certain things, you still need a notary. But what's really exciting here is that... Um, you're also able to, first of all, change ownership quickly. You're able to have signaling effects as well. So if you own an NFT, it's a very big social signaler to say, oh, I've got this. Bragging rights. <laughs> That's good. I've got this rare thing. Um, it makes it easier to do royalties um, because the royalties come directly um, once you sell it. Like, for example, you can say a 10% of royalties that comes from this goes to the original owner. And the other thing is that you can fractionalize it as well. So you can have a NFT, for example, of a Ferrari. And then what you can do is you can change this Ferrari, which is a million, million euros. And then you can change it into, let's say, a thousand, um, a thousand pieces of this NFT. And then people can own a part of the Ferrari for 1,000 instead of having to own the whole of it. So it allows people to be able to have access to assets that they wouldn't previously have access to, which is really, really exciting. But of course, it brings certain um, legal uh, ramifications as well, because depending on what asset has been NFTized, uh, <laughs> NFTs. <laughs> Add that to your Rosetta Stone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one definitely needs to be <laughs> in the dictionary, Cambridge Dictionary next year. Um, but depending on, on what's been made into an NFT, you've got uh, different financial categorizations of what this can be. So, for example, if you turn a house into an NFT, you're going to have to be dealing with custom duty, mortgage laws. There's a whole lo load of laws that you have to deal with that are specific to that asset. And that's what not a lot of people have got quite yet because they, they really are excited about all these amazing things and they are going to be amazing, but there's just still a few legal road bumps that need to be smoothed out so that this can be used in, in, in property, this can be used in finance really big. Uh, and that will come with time. That will come with time. It's, it, it really entered the zeitgeist 
public zeitgeist this just this year anyway. So we got some time. We got some time. And do you own an NFT then? Do you own your own Ferrari? <laughs> <laughs> um, not yet. Not yet, actually. Um, it, I'm planning on doing it. It's just that we, we've been a bit busy at work. <laughs> but if, uh, we'll, I'll make a week, I'll make time on a weekend to do it. Sure. <laughs> Fantastic. And so then if, if people want to get into this space, you know, how, how do they keep up and, and learn about blockchain? You know, cause we, we've talked a lot about the, the skills that are needed kind of, you know, having that empathy or that ability to kind of, you know, understand the business kind of understand, get into the kind of the law, you know, understand the kind of tech lingo, at least from a non-technologist perspective. And obviously, you know, have a beautiful list of high-level analogies to make all things work <laughs> together. <laughs> but how do you actually kind of keep up to date, especially coming from somebody who's got, you know, 0% blockchain experience? How do they get up to speed? Yeah, there's a few good tips that I could send your way. So one of the best ones is stand on the shoulders of giants so there's people that have been in this industry for a very very long time and they are active and they share a lot of information as well so there's a few communal settings you can do to find these people one of them is definitely linkedin so you need to follow all of the blockchain big brains on, on LinkedIn. Uh, off the top of my head, Kia, Blockchain Gandalf is a really good one. Caitlin Long. Um, I won't go through all the names, but yeah, we can we can put them in the in, in the show notes uh, afterward. But yeah, essentially follow the the blockchain big brands. Was it big blockchain big brands? <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> um, well, the best place to do it actually is on Twitter, because in Twitter people have amazing streams of thought. And it's almost like sitting in a cafe and just listening to someone having a conversation or, or like a podcast. We <laughs> <laughs> was going to say. Yeah. It's genuinely that intimate. It's genuinely that intimate. And um, you're able to have discussions with people as well and engage with them, share information uh, in a way that is novel to Twitter in comparison to all of the other social media platforms. So I would definitely say that. Um, but before that, it's good to get that structured, fundamental understanding of it all. And there's a few courses around on Udemy. There was one, um, if you really want to look at the technology aspect, by Gary Ginsler, the currency SEC chairman, on like a lot of the technological framework. So understanding it from an IT governance perspective, really, really, really good. And then there's books by my current PhD professor, um, Primavera de Filippi, um, on blockchain law. She did this with another professor from the US as well. That's really, really great if you want to look at it from the legal perspective. Once you've got the legal perspective and you've got the, the technology that you watch through Gary Ginsler, it's really long, but worth it. Um, then once you have that fundamental understanding by following these people, it will just give you an updated knowledge about what's what's going on and just keeps you ahead of the curve. 
And talking about keeping ahead of the curve, you know, we didn't get a chance to, to talk about your, your, your PhD earlier. So it sounds like you're going back into the academic world, you know, going back into the ring. We're like, what is your, your thesis? I'm, I'm guessing you're going to go even deeper into, into blockchain and the legal and governance implication, or are you going to focus it on your, what, what sounds to be kind of the big, the next big thing like DAOs? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the PhD project is mainly called Blockchain Gov, but it's blockchain law and governance because it's looking at how blockchain can be used as a regulatory tool in private and public institutions. So regulatory tool allows people to have more transparency. That's what regulation does, right? It gives people more transparency. It gives people more auditability. Well, as you mentioned at the beginning, blockchain also allows for anonymity. So there's an issue with a really important part of law, which is accountability. Law wants to be able to make people accountable. These are some of the fundamental principles that we have. So it, a large part of that will be looking at how we can still have accountability in business operations that use blockchain by understanding the governance and how the different people interact with each other. And for my thesis, I'll, I really want to look at how to implement this on a public and private institutional level. And also we'll see but if we can implement blockchain governance in space as well. The, the, the earth just isn't enough, you know, you've got to go beyond. <laughs> I'm definitely saving up for the third year because that means you have to study international law and international space law, which will be really exciting. Um, but yeah, uh, I do not have the head bandwidth for that, but that's definitely for the third year of the PhD that I would to dive into that for sure. Fantastic. So as we go into the, to the close of this interview, Nathan, you know, one of the things I always like to ask my guests is, Right now, at, at the time with the pandemic, you know, law students and, and recent law graduates find themselves in a bit of a scary position. The legal industry was competitive enough before the pandemic, but the pandemic now has kind of come in and, and exacerbated it. For you, who, you know, was at a similar position in, in one stage, you know, graduating straight out of law school and he's gotten all the way here he has today, you know, with in, into blockchain and kind of being a groundbreaking new area. And on top of that, going in for a third round and doing a PhD, what words of advice uh, would you give to people who are now kind of in that similar position? Mm, first of all, breathe through it and let it come to you. Because a lot of people that I've worked with in, in, in law actually, they find their way by just exploring. And uh, of course, you still have to put in a lot of hard work. You still have to send out those CVs or send it out those training contract applications. I did both. <laughs> it's not easy. You have to learn to deal with a lot of rejection and um, become very thick-skinned. But on top of doing all the traditional things, it's also good to look for other novel opportunities as well, because there's not one way to get into law, as I was alluding to earlier. There's partners that I know of now that actually got two twos that started at high streets firms and then worked their way up 
got loads of experience and then went into magic circle firms after they got experience on associate or senior associate or even partnership levels. So there's, it's not linear at all. It's not, it's not linear at all. And, and when you understand that, it doesn't mean that you don't stop going. Like, as I said, even with my tutu, I still went and tried to get um, these magic circle and silver circle um, training contracts. But the way that things are set up now, there's a lot of different opportunities available, um, whether you start as a paralegal and then work your way up or you work for a, a blockchain for a DAO and then and work with alongside really amazing lawyers in a DAO and then use that experience to leverage yourself to get into a traditional, traditional route as well. There's so many different opportunities open. Of course, it means that you have to do things a little bit differently. Not everyone is used to learning about law just through interactions online. Some people like being in buildings with lawyers. It really, really depends on, 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 on your type, but definitely just be open, look around to other opportunities and let the one that suits you come to you. Fantastic. Beautiful stuff. Now, you know, we've talked the tech, we've talked high-level analogies, but we've also talked the inspirational. I always like to end off these interviews with a bit of a lighthearted, fun question round. Now, Nathan, you've told us a lot about your love and enthusiasm for blockchain, which begs me to ask, what was one subject in law school you hated with a passion? Oh my gosh. This is a really, really good question. And did I hate it? <sighs> or in, in this case, I guess the appropriate opposite was, you know, disillusioned. You're not as passionate, as excited you are as blockchain. Okay, okay. For sure, for sure. The first one that comes to mind is landlord. <laughs> Incorporal um, artifacts. That that was just that was just not fun at all. Um, what else? There was another one that I really didn't like at all. And that was uh, employment law as well. Yeah. So yeah, those those two those two weren't 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 my um, <laughs> most enjoyable subjects. Probably the least two tech tech savvy areas of law. I mean, you know, with business and and commercial, you can kind of get more into the tech. But land, I mean, you know, just uh, deeds deeds and witnesses. <laughs> I've deleted that from my memory, really. (laughs) If it ain't on the blockchain, it don't exist. I'm sorry. (laughs) You've got to NFTize it. Exactly, exactly. Then I might get back to it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Nathan. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. If any of our learned listeners want to reach out to you, can they? And if so, how? Yeah, for sure. Um, My LinkedIn inbox is always open. Um, more than happy to point people in the right direction if they're looking for something or even highlight some opportunities that even exist right now. So feel free to to find me on LinkedIn at Nathan Bandy, um, LLM. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much, Nathan. And I wish you a wonderful rest of the day. <laughs> Thank you, Max. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's the show, folks. If you enjoyed learning about blockchain law and governance and want to know more, feel free to reach out to Nathan. We've linked his LinkedIn profile in the show notes below. Special thanks to our Unsung Heroes for the week, Claire Herberg for editing and producing the episode, and Matt Gedridge for the absolute bang of theme song. Enjoying our exquisite brew? Have a knack for social media marketing and outreach? And are an avid tea drinker? 
Well, Legal Tea is hiring. Become the marketer at Legal Tea. Help outreach our exquisite brew to universities and law societies, not only across the UK, but across Europe as a whole. If this sounds like an opportunity for you, then send us an email at hello at legaltea.uk or send us a DM on our social media platforms at legaltea.uk for more details. Till next time.